listening to Humanize Me with Bart Campolo. Hey, all you humanizers. I am going to keep this introduction short because the episode is long and it's not long because it got out of hand. It's long because I got back my old buddy, Pete Rollins, came back on the show. And Pete's just a person who everything is interesting when I'm talking with Pete. And uh, this this show is kind of cool. It's going to be like, I, I backed him up and I got him to like look at the big picture um, of what he's working on, this this lifelong project of his called Pyrotheology. And don't, don't get confused. Don't think that Pete's like this crazy supernaturalist guy. He is the, he, he, he is not that. This is a philosophical deep dive. And I think you're going to like it. I mean, we argue a lot. We don't agree on a lot of things, but man, there's some, there's some core stuff about which I think he has so much to teach me and everybody else. And, uh, I, you know, and there's a little critique of Sam Harris in the, in, in the middle of there. I, I, I think you'll dig it. I think you'll dig this conversation. And so I'm glad you're here. And I got to tell you, I'm, I'm especially glad you're here, Greg Ackerman. Because Greg Ackerman is the newest partner. He is the newest person who has gotten behind Humanize Me for 20 bucks a month on Patreon. And, and Greg, I just, I got to tell you, it's beautiful to have you on board. The more resources we have, the better conversations we can have, the more stuff we can put together. I think we're going to, I think we're getting there. So anyway, Greg, thank you for, for joining the team. And you know, if you're if 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 you're out there and you're thinking like, ah, I don't have twenty dollars a month, a buck a month, three bucks a month, two fifty, seventy-seven cents, I don't care. It just means a lot to have a bunch of people that have a little skin in the humanize me game. Now, having said that, having said that, I do want to tell you there's one other thing. Last week's episode, I got so many messages from people last week saying that was my favorite humanize me episode of all time it was the one on can can insignificance be liberating uh, the conan o'brien quote and all that stuff the poem and i just got to say like if you really love this podcast if you want to do one nice thing for this podcast today send somebody a link to that episode and say hey this is a podcast i listened to you should check out this issue i think that issue has a kind of a standalone. It might just be a blessing to somebody. It might just make somebody's life a little bit better. And uh, and it might get them listening to the show. And we need and want more people listening to the show. And you might say, why? And I'm going to tell you why. On the other side of this episode with Pete Rollins, I'm going to share a letter with you that is why I want you to recommend this podcast to people. But right now, I want you to recommend it to yourself and listen to me and Pete Rollins talking about pyro theology. Hello, hello. How's it going? It's going all right. It's Man, going all right. I don't know if long. you know, but I'm a grandfather now. Oh, wow. That's beautiful. Very cool. It is, but it's also like, you know, it's it's a little, it's like a status change. Like, like, you, like I feel like I've bumped up a generation. Yeah. I'm, yeah. One, I'm one step closer to dying. Yeah. It does remind us of our finitude. Very much so. <laughs> <laughs> and since you're buddies with me, and you're, now you have a buddy that's a grandfather. It, it sort of drags you along with me uh, into that realm. Yeah, I tried, to, I tried to deny that. You know me, I try to have the Peter Pan view. I'm 45 years old and still think I'm 20. Oh my gosh. So 
so I just for just for kicks because you 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 sent me that text where you were like, I want to talk about pyrotheology and this and that. So I, I just looked up Pete Rollins pyrotheology and just to see what the first video that came up was. Uh huh. And and it's from like. I don't know, six or seven years ago, you've got this lovely short haircut. You're standing in front of a stone church talking in measured tones about <laughs> satisfaction and, and certainty. And I just thought like, man, you like we age, we age fast, don't we? Oh, oh, that's cruel. You, well, you should have told me at the end. I can just got to hang up and walk <laughs> away right now. <laughs> <laughs> no, but like, I mean, do, do you not, do you not see videos of yourself from not that long ago and go like, oh my gosh, well, that wasn't that long ago, but I feel different. No, but here's the thing. I had such a, like, I remember those videos and actually uh, the woman who helped put them together, Cindy, she made sure that I looked neat and tidy. But man, some of my oh, videos from six years ago, like I look like an absolute crazy person. I look like an absolute mess. So in some ways, because um, uh, when I started doing videos, uh, then I looked at myself in the videos and I saw how crazy I looked, crazy long oh, hair, know. unwashed, all of that. So in some ways, being in L.A. has made me try to look a little bit less um, like I've just been found in the back of an alley. You know, everyone... Everyone in the world knew I had horrible posture except me. Ah, uh, yeah. Until until I started looking at these videos and I was like, oh my oh. gosh, like I'm crouched over, I'm bent over all the time. Yeah. I had terrible. You know, posture. I saw one of you. Oh, I know. I saw one of you and Rob Bell sitting on stools on stage talking about this oh, stuff. Yeah. Do you know and, and you're and you're like, I mean, you, you're like you're hunched and, and you look a little sweaty and he's got a, cur he's got curvature of the spine like crazy. And I'm just like, oh my gosh, like, why doesn't somebody put a monitor on us so that we can see ourselves and stand up straight? Yes, I know. I know. Rob's had lots of trouble with his back, actually. Um, I think it's better now, but he had to go and see somebody because, uh, you know, because of his posture. Uh, but my posture is very bad, but I don't get any suffering from it. That's good. It's never been painful. Well, this is a great conversation about posture and growing old. <laughs> well, it, but it started out like it started out like I'm I'm I, like I have this granddaughter. My daughter had a baby on January fourth, and it's actually it's it's one of those remarkable. It's like falling in love or realizing you're going to die. It's like everybody in the world goes through it, but when it happens to you, it feels complete. Like you feel like you invented it. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And so it's 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 been a, it's been an extraordinary set of emotions and adjustments. Um, and I, like I know it's absolutely mundane, and yet you know when it's happening to you, it feels like this is this is huge. Yeah. Well, that's the whole existential subjectivity thing. Is like you know it, until you yeah. climb the mountain, the mountain hasn't been climbed. It has been climbed objectively. Someone else has climbed Everest, but if you haven't climbed it, then you haven't subjectively gone through that experience. And uh, yeah, that's a, it's an interesting experience. Like love is mundane in the sense of millions of people have experienced love, but when you experience love, it is a, a singular event. Yeah. Yeah. Lyle Lovett yeah. has this song called, you can't resist it when it happens to you. And it's sort of that same thought of like, you know, it, 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 it seems really like it all seems, it all makes sense until it happens to you. Yeah. Yeah. Here, can I can I take just one second to plug in my headphones properly? I don't know if you want to edit this out or yeah, it's no, all it's part better of the messiness. Well, give me one second. No, 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 it's better if you do. 
I can still hear you. Oh yeah, I can hear you. Sorry. You know what I did is I, I have these wireless headphones and sometimes they cut out. So now I've wired them into the computer. So we're cooking. Beautiful. <laughs> Although I was realizing that probably the ideal, the ideal technological setup for you and me would, for you would be as if, as if I could hear you, but you, you couldn't hear me. Oh, a hundred percent. I mean, I think half of our conversations are where we are arguing forcefully. That's why I love you so much. Uh, you've got a very Irish spirit about you. You love a good fight. <laughs> There's so many memories of you as sitting with a drink or arguing about some area of philosophy or of life or of science. So I, uh, I, I'm guessing that's going to happen. Some, I can't believe we've got six minutes into this and we haven't had a fight yet. I know. <laughs> what, what was funny was, is I, I was, when I was watching that video of you looking so, so good, uh-huh. I just wanted to scream at it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so pyrotheology was the thing you were talking about, you know, seven or eight years ago. Yep. Or, right. Are you still talking about it? Yeah, no, it's a, it's a life project. It's, uh, you know, I started really trying to develop it in my early 20s. I'm 45 now. So really, I've been uh, working on this project for over 20 years. And I mean, I'm just, and I, I'm just getting started. Okay, so, so then it's, so it's fair game for me to ask you a simple question. Yes, I may not be able to give a simple answer, but yeah. <laughs> well, when you talk about your project, like I, I mean, I, I follow you, I love you. Like I talk to you, but like when I think about your project, one of the persistent questions that comes up to me and, 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 and like, I know why I'm attracted to you, mm-hmm. but like, sometimes I, I sort of go like, okay, what are you trying to do? Yes. Like if somebody said to you like, what, like, what's the, what are you trying to do? Like, are you a religious leader that's trying to articulate an approach to life's ultimate questions that you think is more helpful than other approaches? Like, are you, are you, are you like, do you have a gospel? Yeah. So that's a good question. Um, I, I have what Kierkegaard would call, a, uh, he would call a life view and a life view is in a sense, a position which from which I orient myself to which I orient myself and that uh, I, my experiences orbit around. So in other words, I do have a project. I'm trying to work through something and everything I do uh, to some extent relates to that. And, you know, if someone listens to my podcast, like today I did a podcast on necrophilia and uh, it would be very hard at first to go, what has necrophilia got to do with pyrotheology? But in, in a small way, even that podcast is connected with this, this project that I'm involved with. And yeah, we can, we can start to dissect it if you, if you want, try to work out what exactly well, I mean, this is. <laughs> I, I, I mean, I want to understand. Yeah. Like, and I realize, like this, I'm just going to take this opportunity. Like, it's funny, like you sent me that funny email, like I'll do, uh, you know, I'll talk to you, but only if we can talk about this. And I, and like, I thought like, okay, I want to like, in a sense, I want to back up from all the arguments we've ever had yes, and back away from them all. And then like, I want to come in at, a, at an angle and go like, I want to try to, I want to understand the larger framework in which we're talking. Great. And so for me, like one of my questions is like, if, if, if I understand the overall project yes. as pyrotheology, like if that's the overarching title I give to it. Okay. Yeah. My, my question is kind of like, 
what's the point of it? Like if somebody said like, my overall project is, you know, um, CrossFit fitness and you go like, and what's the point of it? You go, oh, it's to get people healthy and in shape. Yes. Like, okay. Yeah. Pyrotheology. What's the point? Great. Okay. In a nutshell, and I can actually know, I can, I can probably articulate it in, uh, uh, one paragraph, uh, but it's like showing uh, the answer without the working out. It's kind of not much use, but I, I'll, I'll, I'll start right. simply and then we can expand it. Uh, my work is interested in this idea that to be human is to experience what in philosophy can be called an ontological antagonism or a, uh, a conflict that to be human is to experience lack. It is to experience a certain not oneness with oneself. Now, at first that sounds abstract, but you can think about it very basically, like you can have multiple desires. You can want to be with someone and not want to be with someone. You can want to be healthy and yet also want to be unhealthy. You can, you can want to be a lawyer and want to be an artist, right? So we, we have all of these conflicts within us. And religion in a nutshell can be described as the desire to get rid of that antagonism, that sense of lack, to fill it with something or to expose it as an illusion. So those are the two major things is either this lack that we feel is an illusion that you need to see through, or it is a reality that you have to fill with something. And, uh, you know, with God is a good example. But there are secular forms of this. As someone who says that if you are famous enough or you look good enough or you have enough money, uh, you can experience wholeness. You can get rid of the antagonisms of life. And pyrotheology is a theory and a technology that is designed to help us actually tarry with that lack, to enjoy it, to find the productive side of it. It is a way of not trying to flee from this nothingness. And one of the names for nothingness is death, but that's only one name for it. But not to try to free, flee from this experience of guilt, experience of death, experience of meaninglessness but actually to find a salvation within that experience. There you go. Okay. So, I mean, and that, I, I hear you. And, and it's funny, like, cause yeah. you said something similar to that. Um, at one point you said like, Hey, a lot of the, re a lot of the religions you've encountered are all about trying to offer certainty and satisfaction. Mm -hmm. Like, like here's the way not to feel that lack yes. of certainty. I'll give you certainty. Here's a way not to feel that lack of satisfaction. This will satisfy you. Yes. Now, and just, you're sort of yeah. like. And ju just go, on no, that. go ahead. Oh, go yeah, ahead. Ju just to, yeah, because you're absolutely right. Uh, all I want to add is one thing, is I would say that there are religions of hedonism and they are religions that promise wholeness and certainty. But there are also religions of nihilism and they promise that you can escape the lack through giving up desire. So they're generally the two. Like Buddhism, right? Yeah, yeah. Kind of, kind of Eastern forms of religion tend towards uh, nihilism, and Western forms of religion tend towards hedonism, with some exceptions. I think Zen Buddhism is an exception. I think uh, radical theology in the Western tradition is an exception. But yeah, you've broadly got. So, yeah, that. Go ahead. So then I hear you, yeah. like in, 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 in sort of like, uh, not smugly, but sort of look towards the camera and sort of say, pyrotheology says, hey, instead of trying to satisfy those desires and, and eliminate all your uncertainty and all your, all your neediness, yeah. 
And instead of trying to escape those desires or transcend them, pyrotheology is about sort of embracing them, yes. not seeking, right? Like not seeking to satisfy those things, but like just going like, this is the way it is. Like embracing the unknowing, embracing our brokenness, embracing our doubt. Yes. Right? Yes. It's salvation from salvation. Exactly. Yeah. So that I, I thought, I see. So the way to be satisfied is to embrace not the, – the way to maximize your satisfaction is to stop trying to maximize your satisfaction. The way to maximize your sense of peacefulness is to stop trying to escape from the struggle. Yes. Now, I would like to unpack And that. isn't that just another form of like, here's, the, here's your – Here's satisfaction. Yeah, see, and that's why I want to unpack it because there's a you're right, but there's a lack of subtlety in what you're saying, and and it, we need to bring a couple <laughs> that's more. That's my business. <laughs> a lack of subtlety. Yeah, but it, but you know, but you're right, and what you're what you're articulating is dialectics, and dialectics, in a nutshell, uh, is one of the greatest inventions I would say of human thought. Um, in its simplest form, it is that you have a position. In you know anything, for example, God exists. There's an affirmation. You're making a claim, and then there's a negation. God doesn't exist, and then there's the negation of negation, which is different from synthesis. Uh, yeah. So the negation of negation is where this rejection of of the past actually helps to reinterpret that past and bring something positive out of it. So really, progress in thinking occurs in this process of thesis and antithesis that leads to uh, a, a deeper antithesis. Um, and, and, and for okay, Hegel- Wait, wait, wait. Yeah, I, I, go got you on, I got you on the thesis, yeah. God exists. Example, God exists. Yeah. Um, and I got you on the antithesis. No, God does not exist. Yes. Um, that's the negation. Yeah. And then you say there's the negation of the negation, which is to say, God does not exist- is incorrect. Yes. Okay. But that's not the same thing as, as just going back and saying God does exist again. Like it's not just a like, uh, yes, I can. No, you don't. Yes, I can. No, you don't. Exactly. So like, and this is why. This is what's why. What's the third thing? What's the third yeah. thing? Well, let, yeah. Let's let's dig into this example. And this is why I'm not a humanist, actually. So this this will bring in that area as well. So God traditionally is the name for a transcendental, which is something that that transcends materiality, something that that is not reducible to nature, right? So I think we can all supernatural. agree to, yeah, supernatural, yeah. right? So there's the affirmation. There is a transcendental, non-reductive dimension to reality, right? The negation of that is materi materialism in a nutshell, right? Which is the idea that, no, there is no transcendental dimension to existence. What there is is a complex interplay between material things, atoms bouncing against atoms, et cetera. But the the antithesis, if we just use that example, would be, oh, no, there is then a transcendental or non-reductive dimension to reality, but it's not supernatural. It's, it's, it's a non-reductive dimension within reality itself. So, for example, in quantum mechanics, you have superpositioning, or in mathematics, you have this uncertainty principle or the set theory paradox, which means that Oh, actually, the in rejecting the notion that there is a transcendental dimension to reality and embracing pure materialism, that's a non-dialectic no. But a dialectic no is one that says, actually, in 
actually studying nature in a very deep way, we discover that there is what in science is called a non-reductive materialism. There is a uh, there is an antagonism. There is a there is a dimension that is not reducible to being itself. So that would be a dialectic uh, third but, position. But a good a good materialist, like yeah. a thoughtful materialist, would say there is a non-reductive, transcendent experience or quality to existence that's that that if you trace it back it's still grounded in the material world yes no, no i'm saying that i'm saying that yeah that's that's that's, that's the european uh materialist but they're anti-humanist so if you look at the your the european materialists like people like Quentin Mesu or uh, speculative realists, they, they're, they're absolute materialists, but they're non-reductive materialists. And that means they're anti-humanist. But I don't think there's very much of that in the, in the crude materialism that we see. But you're absolutely right. This, this dialectic no is not a return to supernaturalism. It is weirdly a fine... But here's the thing, right? I studied scholastic philosophy uh, my primary degree is scholastic philosophy and people go like why did you study scholastic philosophy because you couldn't get into the business school yeah, yeah exactly <laughs> <laughs> yeah but i probably should have done that to be honest um but my interest in scholastic philosophy is because for me even though i my speciality is contemporary philosophy the debates in contemporary philosophy and contemporary scientific theory are all fine in the scholastics, right? Whenever the scholastics are talking about original sin, for example, they are trying to talk about a type of antagonism within reality that is non-reductive to human instinct. And so what I'm kind of saying is that, that, that actually people reject, say, religious thought because they went to a seminary and it was like Hogwarts and you're being taught ridiculous things. But actually, the, the, the deep theological thinking of the scholastics um, is deeply insightful. And so although you might be saying no to the supernatural dimension, you will find that some of those discussions are incredibly contemporary. And you only discover that through right. dialectics. Yeah. Okay. So, 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 so that's where I think like, you know, it seems to me that what happens is you have the the thesis. Yeah. All these transcendent experiences that we have are we're having because there's actually a supernatural force on the other side, you know, engaging us. Yeah. And then you have the antithesis that goes like, nah, nah, there, there, there's no supernatural force. There's no evidence for that. No, no, I'm a materialist. And then you have somebody going like, but that's a really crude materialism. Like you're denying all those cool experiences. And then you have just like a more nuanced materialist yes. vision that says, ah, the experiences are numinous. And, and you know, and they, they, they're, they're like William James would recognize them. They're noetic. They're this, they're yes. that, they're, you know, they're irreducible to words, but they're, you know, but like, you know what, there's still no evidence that they're happening anyplace outside of your brain or outside of your, the physical world. So you go like, so it's not really, it's, it's, it's just, a, it's just a deeper 
thinking. But, but see, Antithesis. But this is the thing, and, and to come back to what you're saying, is this is one of the arguments we have, is because you feel it's necessary to say that. But like in the academy, even among the scholastics, nobody's talking about whether God really exists. I mean, some people are. But, but the discussions are not about that. The, the discussions are about attempting to create a sophisticated discourse that helps unconceal the world in a certain way. So in in the university, every discipline is attempting to unconceal the world, whether it's poetry or sociology or physics or chemistry. These are forms To what end? To what end? To what end? Well, what do you mean by that? that? Because that's what I'm interested in. Like to me, I want to unconceal stuff too. Yes. But to the you know, but I have a very specific, almost re- a re- not almost a religious goal in mind, and that is, I want people to be able to enjoy and 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 grow and flourish in the natural world. Yes, and so I want to reveal it. I want to say, like, this is how it works. Because if you understand how it works, you'll be more able to bend it to the purpose of, yeah. of your, bend it towards your, your values and your values are in, inherently like the, the most fundamental value of them all. The original value from which all the other ones flow is to propagate life, to keep life moving forward, like to protect but this, life. Yeah, but this is why, and this will get us into some interesting stuff, because this is why I'm not a humanist or a psychological uh, evolutionist. Right? Now, when you say you're not a humanist, do you mean you're not like me, or do you mean you're not like some classical form of humanism that I'm probably not either? Well, well, let me- I mean, you know me. Yes. Are I'm, you saying I'm not like you, Bart? No, I, well, yeah, but in the sense of what I hear you saying, so let me feed something back to you and see if you agree with this, and then we'll find out. <laughs> this will be okay. a good yeah. If you're like me, yeah. Um, okay, so by by evolution, evolutionary um, theory, of course, is the idea that that life finds a way. Basically, what is life? Life is a detour between two deaths, right? <laughs> there was some <laughs> point in our cosmic history where something burst into life for a fraction of a second, and then it disappeared. And that probably happened billions of times until something hung around long enough to reproduce itself, <laughs> and. That detour between two nothingnesses, two voids, has grown and grown. So now for human beings, we're at like 70 or 80 years, which is pretty impressive, right? So life is this interesting detour within the void. And evolutionary theory is basically that that uh, life is wants to find a way to last uh, and then even to improve itself. So that's a, and this is called, what's, this is what instinct is. So instinct has three dimensions very quickly. If I'm boring you, whatever, tell me to stop. But uh, instinct. No, this is where I live, man. Oh, this yeah. is where I live Great. is like the, the fundamentals of my religion is, is this. Yes. Life wants to live. Well, this is why I disagree with you, but I haven't got to that yet. So instinct <laughs> is, is, uh, has three things. Instinct is generally is connected to very specific things like food, mating, shelter. Right, so that's what instinct, so it's got very specific things. Secondly, instincts can be satisfied. So whenever an animal mates for a while, it feels fine, and then eventually it mates again, or when it's got shelter, it's happy, right? And then thirdly, instincts are in the service of life. So instincts are basically there to get the animal to survive and increase this detour between the voids. 
Now, the reason why I fundamentally disagree with evolutionary psychology and, and humanism is because humanism, as in standard American humanism, applies this theory to human subjectivity, right? And this is where psychoanalysis disagrees. So if you look at psychoanalysis has this notion of drive, there's instinct which animals have and humans have drive. Now, drive comes out of instinct, but it's not reducible to it. So what is a drive? Okay, so a drive doesn't have very specific things it's connected to. It can be connected to stamp collecting. It can be connected to chess. It can be connected to sex. It can be connected to anything, right? Secondly- It's a layer, it's a layer above instinct. Like yes. it's related to it. Yes, it's related to it. It has the same strength as an instinct. That's what, that's the difference. Oh, no, no, no. But what I mean is it's related to it. Like, you know, Freud's, and that wasn't Freud, but somebody said like, you know, everything is about sex, except sex and except sex is sex, about power. Yeah. Um, but the idea yeah. is that like your stamp collecting on some ways, if we read, if we reduce it, like, why do you love stamp collecting? Like it, it will somehow, it can be reduced down to it's, it's related to a way of satisfying one of your instincts. Yes. Now there's two ways, because this is where, again, you know, I said earlier, we have to kind of like parse the language a bit. So I want to make a distinction yeah. between drive and desire. So you can have a desire for a cup of coffee or you can have a desire for a nice meal. But if you have a drive mm -hmm. for food, you will then eat too much or too little. You'll have this unhealthy connection with it. So yeah, so drive is different from desire. Your desire- Is drive insatiable? Yes, that's the second one. Yep, that's the second point. Whereas instincts are, can be sated, drive isn't. So, for example, if you have a drive for shelter, if an animal has a drive for shelter, they they get shelter, and the animal's not thinking, "I would like a bigger shelter," or "I'd like to." No, if it you mean if it has an instinct for shelter? Yes, exactly, an instinct. But a human being, if yeah. they have a drive for shelter, they'll be like, "I want a bigger house. I want two houses. I want a house by the beach. I want you know." They'll always be moving, right? Because it's insatiable, uh, like gambling or something like that. And then thirdly, but, but isn't that just like a perverted or a broken instinct? Like, like the way we eat fat, it used to be that like, get as much fat as you want. And that made sense in a fat free, in a, in a fat scarce environment. And then the environment changes and our instinct to like, get as much fat as possible, all of a sudden becomes a problem. Yeah, but, but, but it wasn't yeah. a problem that we were insatiable for fat when there wasn't enough around. Yeah, of course. I mean, the, but see, my issue is every time you ask me that, I always go, oh, you think that I'm saying something like it's supernatural. No, it's perfectly explainable. There's a great theory. It's, it is, it's, it's exactly what you said. It's perverted instinct. Okay, like, okay, okay. When I'm you sorry. hear me talk about these things, I'm not bringing in and then the fairies did it. No, they're <laughs> perfectly... <laughs> You're right. There's, there's very sensible reasons for it. Um, and you're absolutely right that, that drive comes out of instinct, but it is a right. perverted form of instinct. Okay, I got and you. The and the third reason why you can see that is instincts are in the service of life, but drives kind of get us into all sorts of difficulties. This is why Freud called it death drive, because, you know, your drive for property can make you, you know, work too hard and get a heart attack. You're never satisfied with the shelter you have, et cetera, et cetera. Now, the reason yeah, why yeah. I say all of this is a lot of evolutionary psychologists and humanists think that religion arose as a way to manage our instincts in various ways. But actually, I would say that religions generally arise out of an attempt to navigate our drives, not our instincts, but our drives. And that, 
And when you apply evolutionary theory to human subjectivity, you get into lots of problems because you go, humans are in the service of life. They want, and if you just educate them about the best thing to do, they'll do it. But in psychoanalysis, there's a notion that people also want the worst for themselves. This is the difference between counseling and psychoanalysis. In counseling, you assume that the person wants to help themselves. So if you give them good advice, you will be helping them. Psychoanalysis begins when you realize that often we do want the best for ourselves. Often, which means you can never take counsel because you actually do want to be healthy. You do want to be well. And that's why I disagree with what you're saying is you're saying that, you know, you want to help people kind of move in this natural progression they have to more life, more goodness, more wholeness. And I'm saying no human subjectivity is caught up in an antagonism that means that we do want the best for ourselves. And, and the name for that is capitalism, where you continue to work harder and harder. Like Some people say capitalism is very natural, right? So Ayn Rand says that whatever you say about capitalism, the only thing that we all agree on is it's natural, right? We want more. But actually, it's very unnatural. You don't see animals no, good. accumulate more and more and more. Capitalism is, is, is drive-related, not instinct-related. And that's where I'm not a humanist. See, and, and, and see, what I disagree with you about so yes. much <laughs> is that you are so Christian that you see in your, in your bones that you see an infinite qualitative distinction between human beings and every other form of animal. Yes. No, 100%. But, but by the way, you're right that that's Christian in the sense of like within the Western tradition, the scholastics. I mean, one of the greatest inventions within the scholastic tradition is, of course, um, you know, the, uh, the God-shaped hole, Pascal, the, which is just the idea of an ontological antagonism. But right. that is also in German idealism, existentialism, Marxism, uh, psycho, psychoanalytic theory, post-structuralism, all of these positions. So you're kind of right, like you're either a Jungian, a New Age. But all those positions were developed on the on the foundation yes, of Christianity. Yes, you're, yeah, 100%. I mean, I'm not, you're, you're knocking on an open door. I'm like, oh yeah, that's why I studied scholastic philosophy. But the, your alternative then is people like Jung, right? So, and there's a lot of Jungians in America. Jung is, a, is he... He, although he weirdly believes in the drive to a certain extent, ultimately he believes that there is not an ontological antagonism in being itself. Uh, and therefore there is a way that, therefore we are utilitarians ultimately. If, if you, people will want the best for themselves, uh, utilitarian ethics will work. So you're right. There's basically, you're either on the side of, uh, we're all fucked, which is Christianity. You know, there is, there, is, there is an inherent antagonism to being. There is no wholeness, completeness, no salvation. Or you're an atheist, which is you believe in wholeness, completeness, uh, a salvatory God who will heal you. No, now, no. Not, not, by the way, this I, is by the way not, not all atheism, only contemporary atheism, not Nietzsche. Nietzsche and good atheism isn't that, right? Yeah, yeah. Th I mean, I, there's me. I'm, I'm like, I'm just looking at you going like, A... I think that that we're just animals like with, you know, instincts and that all of our drives are sort of rooted in our instincts and all of our instincts are rooted in the desire to not live ourselves. Like we're not, we don't desire personal immortality. 
but, but rather this desire that li- like, like it's, it, our DNA is using us to keep going forward. Yes. No, but you that, know, that, selfish gene stuff. You are the perfect example of a humanist. You are a total humanist, which is that you don't make a quantitative uh, distinction or qualitative, sorry. You don't make a qualitative distinction between instinct and drive. We both agree that drive comes out of instinct. Like I'm not, of course, at everything. Wait, 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 wait. But let me, let me, let me just finish. Because what I'm saying is, is that you say, hey, listen, either you think we're fucked or you think that like there's wholeness is possible. And I'm going like, no, 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 no. Like once you become conscious or self-conscious, once you develop an awareness of your own mortality. Yes. Okay. Yes. Then even if you are a naturalist, even if you are a materialist on some level, you're still fucked. Yeah. You have to deal with the knowledge that the other animals don't have to deal with. So you've got all of those same drives and you've got that same instinctual desire to or, or dr- instinctual yeah i guess an instinctual instinct just not instinctual yeah. anything instinct you've got that same instinct to not to, to live and to pr- and to reproduce and to pr- protect your young and to protect your species and to protect life itself you have that evolutionary yeah. like drive <laughs> well, to, yes. to protect life but you're fucked because you know you'll fail so we're both we're both in agreement that human subjectivity arises out of uh, n- basically nothingness. Like be, you've got various moments in cosmic history: being arises out of nothingness, life arises out of being, self consciousness arises out of life. And you're right at every moment of those. I would say that it's what's called non-reductive. I it arises out of the previous epoch, but it's non-reducible to it. And what I'm arguing is that that we have, of course, instincts, our life instincts, but humans with self-consciousness, any self-conscious being, that, you know, well, the self-conscious beings that we know, um, the antagonism becomes part of consciousness itself. And basically then the health is tarrying with that negative dimension coming to terms with the nothingness that is where happiness is so you're right like it's not that we're either screwed or we're not and maxim and maximizing the positive uh, at the same time like like because that same self-consciousness is what makes like i'm over here i'm immortal i'm me you're you oh now i can see you now i can love you now i can connect with you so like my awareness of my own death is the price i pay to be aware of the world around me and to be aware of you and to yes, fall in yes. love. And so I go like, you know, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a, you know, there, there's a negative, there's a price to this bargain, but there's also a, a benefit yes. from this bargain. No, but that's, that's why I'm dialectic. So I, and I, you're right to say that like my, but my argument is it's the Nietzschean argument is that to overcome nihilism, you have to feel the tremor of nihilism. So the, which is in philosophy is called the death of God. And the death of God is the experience when your anchor of meaning collapses, when you kind of, the, the, the mystics call it the dark night of the soul. It's gone by many names, but it's a, this existential moment where you enter into the complete rupture of your political, religious, and cultural ideas that you feel the radical contingency of existence. But I just want to make sure, like, when you say the radical contingency of my existence, like, to me, like, all I'm hearing is, like, when you realize, like, you're not that important and you're going to die. 
Yes, although I want to let, let's add one more thing to that. You're going to die because I think that's very important, right? Death is something that that lies ahead of us, <laughs> but the existentialists also talk about death is also something that exists within us in life, and this is dialectic. I guess is a good example of dialectics. Well, that's the part where I say you're not that significant. How do you mean? I mean, I mean, like. You know, you might think like, I'm going to die, but I'm going to do something that will last beyond me, or I'm going, you know, I'll be remembered oh, or, yeah, yeah. you know, something. And you realize like, or, or, or then you look out into the universe and you realize like you're a speck on a speck in the middle of a speck, like you're nothing yes. on, a, on an absolute level. Yeah. And so like, you're still alive, yeah. but you, you become aware that you are a vanishingly, of, of a vanishingly small cosmic significance. And that's its own kind of death. Yes, death well, that's within the, life. yes, that's that's a that's a type of death of God experience, absolutely. But then, of course, that's not where philosophy ends. That's where philosophy begins. A lot of people, and you hear this all the time, is like, "Oh, philosophy ends with nihilism or ra- the 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 knowledge of radical contingency." But you're like, no, that's where philosophy starts. Because then we have to go, "What do we do with that?" And uh, you know, right? What, that's where yeah. humanism starts too. No way, well, yeah, yeah, but the, exactly. But the, my argument with humanism is that. Humanism generally uh, doesn't uh, have a concept of drive, and also, so it doesn't have a concept of drive, and therefore is is too based in evolutionary psychology and uh, forms of like psychotherapy, Jungianism, Gnosticism. That's my problem with humanism. Is that humanism is all like here? Here's the anti-humanist. But what's your problem with me? Because like I'm not, I'm not that guy. Well, like I, re- like I mean, I recognize even in just our capitalism, even in just the global warming, the, the climate change issue, where you go like, obviously we have a death drive. Mm-hmm. Obviously, there's a sense in which we recognize that our appetite is ultimately destroying us, or just even in terms of like people living in individualism and like getting a new phone and, and, and staying on and, and being on Facebook and doing all this stuff, knowing that like, this isn't really working for anybody. Um, and yet people will continue to do it. Like people don't act in their own best interest. So like, you don't you, like, like fight with me. Don't fight with quote unquote no, human. I'm fight with fighting me, like, with you. I'm fighting with you because you said that you're basically uh, agree with evolutionary psychology. And I, I'm saying I'm a psychoanalyst. I'm a Freudian. So that, and I'm saying humanism is je- like not 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 the European human, not not the uh, people like Messi. just say Bart. You Bart, yes, what's Bart. what's your problem with me? You um, don't have an adequate conception of drive, and, and, and why? Because I think that because I give advice. Because I, because, I, because I believe that people can be helped? Well, okay. Well, because, I, because I think there's, that there's a way to live with death and live with finitude that is better than another way of living with death and yeah. finitude? But here's the thing, Bart. You're a nicer person than me. You are. You're a lovely person. Like, I actually have no quarrel with you as a person. If people knew how nice you were, like, I hate to say it. I hate to be nice about my friends. It really pains me. But you, in your practice, uh, help so many people and you're an inspiration to me. So I am in no way, you know, critiquing your practice at all, but actually, but on that, I go, yes, if, if you know why I do it, do you know why I do it, Peter? For the money. (laughs) I do it out of pure selfishness. I am utterly convinced that forming meaningful relationships that are full of love and help and, and trying to do work that makes things better for other people and cultivating a sense of wonder and gratitude for just the privilege of being 
conscious in the first place. I'm absolutely convinced that that will lead to my health, to my well-being, to my flourishing, yes. to my happiness. Okay, but it is yes. utterly selfish. Okay. No, but here's the point. No, 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 no. Here, so here's, here's loads in that, right? So first of all, Oh, I don't think necessarily, like it, you're saying again that you are selfish. Like here's the Freudian idea. So in, in a humanist notion, there's, there's selflessness and selfishness, right? So you, you're either selfless or selfish. And then some humanists will say selflessness, ultimately you're calculating. There's a calculation of that's the better way to live, right? Amen to that. that exactly. That's why we disagree because for Freud, he talks about a perverse type of selflessness which isn't selflessness like Mother Teresa. It's the person who, for example, uh, if you were selfish and you made a million dollars, you might stop, go get a nice house or 10 million or 100 million. Whenever we frenetically can't stop making money, even when our doctor is saying you're going to have a heart attack, even whenever you're losing the people that you love and you're stepping over your best friends, right? But you still do it, even though you're aware of all of that. That is the selfless, that, that is a selflessness of a zombie. You know, a zombie will attack you even if you've got a shotgun. Yeah, that's so, sickness, so man. That's sickness. That's somebody who, that's somebody who is pursuing happiness or pursuing flourishing in a misguided way they're just misguided no no that's that's a very that's it's funny you say that because that's a very aristotelian thing to say is that you know if, if people people are misguided they they wouldn't do the bad as if you're able to point out why it's bad but i'm saying the opposite i'm saying this person they know that they're pushing their family away they know they're going to have an early grave they're not misguided consciously they know that they are doing something not good like a gambler they're broken and yet, they're broken yes, inside yes. no but right now you're but yeah they're broken but the technical they need healing but yes but there is a technical discourse a very it's a very complex discourse but now you're the missing like there's a that's called drive and there's a there's volumes written on on why we act like that but my issue is that that we as human beings are not primarily selfish there's a selfish dimension and that connects with instinct but there is a perverse selflessness to us as well where we want to die and that's also connected with instinct yes that's what i said it's a non-reductive dimension just like being is comes out of nothingness and life comes out of being yes it arises out of it but it's a non-reductive uh process therefore you can't say drive is just a, a, a different form of instinct is it arises out of it but creates not a quantitative difference it's a qualitative difference that's the key that's why psychoanalysis is so important that, and that's 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 what i'm interested that's what that's the difference between what i do and what you do in parotheology you don't give people advice you simply try to help them come to terms with the antagonism of their own desires and the lack that is within their being. And the idea is if you do that, people will become healthier and will live better lives. But if someone hasn't done that- Then you no are trying how, to help no, them. Yeah, yeah, then you are trying to help No, but that's why I'm trying to parse out the language more. What I'm saying is that if I give advice to somebody who hasn't been able to- in, undergo the death of God, experience the conversion from the desire for wholeness, then whatever advice I give them, they're going to find a way to make that damage into them, whether it's they don't take the advice or they take it too literally. But if someone is healthy in the sense that they embrace the lack, then they are more likely to live, yes, to, to be freed from the 
the more negative side of drive. By the way, there's a positive side of drive. I don't want to drive is what makes things meaningful. Human beings seem to be the only animals we know. Maybe there's other animals, but almost the only animals we know that overvalue things that are terrible utilitarians that have things that we will live and die for beyond utilitarian calculation. Right, that don't in, that don't actually cause us to live or move life forward yes. or make us healthier. Yes. That's right. We, and that's we, an important we value thing. things that are harmful. Yes. Yeah. Th- but that that's what like so for me the question is that people say what is the meaning of life and you go like Heidegger would say you know in a way <laughs> he would say well we are creatures that have meaning. That's the important thing is that you can find meaning in lots of different ways. But what's fascinating is that we are a creature that asks the question, what is the meaning of life? I.e., we are a creature who can find a project or a person who uh, makes us non-utilitarian, actually makes us uh, want to even destroy ourselves. And that's the positive side of drive. So that so drive is not a bad thing. It's just when you know. And now, and now, I mean, I, but to me, I mean, like, and you're, and you're right. Like, I think, I think the fundamental mistake or difference here, mm-hmm. and I would say it's a mistake on your part, uh-huh. is to think that that drive isn't if you if you just keep teasing it out. If you just keep like, oh, so you don't want to be alone? Why don't you want to be alone? You go like 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 ultimately what people desire is rooted back. If you follow the thread back, just like every other living thing, it's connected to the original value, which is life itself. And so like love to me, love to me is just a better strategy to, 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 to satisfy to satisfy that need or to, or to fulfill that instinct. Now, see, that sounds like, you know, the return to animality, which is, I don't think the right answer. The, the answer is not to try to go back. Be a good animal. Be a no, good animal. I know you're saying that, but that's why we disagree because I'm going like that. Actually what makes life wonderful is drive is that actually you do overvalue things. You do like give yourself to causes that, that you'll sacrifice where like the, 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 that's another religious notion is that we get back to pure instinct, which I think is impossible, but also not even desirable. <laughs> no, no, but like, here's the thing. I have a friend who is a marvelous, marvelous pianist. Okay. Mm-hmm. And driven to improve. And, and, and he's got some psychological issues that mean like he doesn't play well with other people all the time. But he goes into a room and he practices these pieces and he and he finds finds things in the music that other people don't find. Yeah. And then he comes out and he does a concert. And the music lifts people and it takes, you know, you've been in a concert like that where the music takes your mind places it wasn't going before or 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 lifts you out of yourself in yeah. a weird way. And so so he's his his drive, his his art artistry, his fixation on that is a beautiful thing but like if i boil it down if i if i tease it back in a weird way he's still trying to connect he's still trying to have a relationship with his he can't relate to people in that that other way that says like let's sit down over a cup of coffee and tell me about your kids but he can connect this way and so even though it's a it's an offbeat or it's an unusual way of 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 fulfilling his instinctual desire to contribute to his community, he's still contributing to his community. And it is, it is his, his instinctual need to add value 
Yeah, it's just and by, to be recognized. Yeah. I just don't think and and, and to yeah. accomplish something that, that 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 is that that benefits the larger community that makes his music so amazing. No, I I think is, this is the you know it, it's your interpretation of reality that's this that's the struggle here. It's like I I think it's a great example, but let me give you a way of articulating in a psychoanalytic way what's going on with your friend is to make a distinction between happiness and joy, right? Um, Technically, happiness is the pleasure you get from having something. Uh, So you get a present at Christmas, you have happiness. Oh yeah, I got the new computer, right? Joy in a technical sense is the the pleasure you get from not having, right? Um, And and think about it like waiting for your Christmas present, right? A kid might be uh, having temper tantrums and not being able to sleep, but you can tell that they're actually getting pleasure from not having the present. So we've got happiness and we've got joy, right? Now, those are both dimensions of being human. Uh, The issue is we often in our contemporary society, we think we concentrate on happiness. There is something that we'll get that will satisfy our desire, right? And joy, as in, you know, the actual struggle of life and embracing the struggle, we, we don't get as much pleasure out of. What I'm saying is that a healthy person realizes that while there are moments of happiness in life, right? There are moments whenever you go on that holiday and it's wonderful. Uh, joy or anticipation is where a much a much richer form of pleasure arises out of. And that's very human, right? So we as human beings can like have a goal like being a great pianist, uh, writing a great novel. The thing is, it's not actually about writing the novel because when you publish a novel or a book, it's not a big deal, but it's actually not getting what you want and struggling towards it, which is what gives you this intense, intense libidinal uh, uh, connection with the world. But aren't you really saying like, aren't you really saying like, we need we need protein and we also need carbohydrates and we also need like, like that we, we need, a, we need, we need, jo, jo, we need anticipation. We also need occasionally to have moments of ecstatic release. We need, we need to work hard at something and, and to be in focus and in flow where we're trying to get somewhere, you know, like no, we need no, all no, of no, that. no, 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 like no, it's no, all no, part no. of flourishing. No, no, no. It's the reason is so, and Freud has a great reason, a great way of saying it. Uh, he has the two terms, pleasure principle and reality principle. So pleasure principle is basically happiness. It's getting what you want. It's it's climbing the trees, eating chocolate, winning all the games you play as a kid, right? Reality principle is the name for what gets in the way of that. Your body won't let you climb the trees. Your friends won't let you win all the games. Your parents won't let you eat chocolate all the time, right? Now, I'll, we naturally think that if we could get rid of the reality principle and just have the pleasure principle, life would be great, right? Like we get we get what we want. There's no obstacle. Like if oh, if only that guy wasn't married to that woman and I could be with her, that would be wonderful. That's a very common experience. Or if only I could get that job, then that would be wonderful. Now it's not right. often consciousness, but it is definitely you see it in life as people think, oh, if only I could, you know, look that way, then it would be great, right? Anyway, the point that Freud made was that it's the reality principle that creates the pleasure principle. So not being able to climb Mount Everest makes it really enjoyable. You have to work hard, you have to struggle, you have to do all of that. Then you climb Mount Everest and you get a moment of happiness. But actually where the richness was, was in the 
the struggle. So it's not, what, the reason why I'm disagreeing with you is I'm saying it's not just that oh, we have a bit of both. It's that they are dialectically intertwined. And so although there are moments of happiness, actually what gives life its human dimension or its depth dimension is what Camus calls being the rebel. And being the rebel is, for Camus, there's the conservative who thinks that the kingdom of God is behind them, right? In the golden age in the 1950s or in their past relationship or in their childhood. So the conservative thinks the kingdom of God is behind them. The revolutionary thinks the kingdom of God is in front of them. There is a world that where everything can be fixed. Uh, the, the rebel for Camus is the one who enjoys the struggle for a better world without the uh, tyranny of the utopic vision. Right. So you think of progressives. That's me. That's me. (laughs) Because I don't believe in the utopic vision because I know that I'm going to die. And I know that you can never resolve the struggle between selfishness and self and and cooperation, that we have dual instincts that and they're and they're both necessary to keep life moving forward, but that they can never fully resolve themselves so that things can always get better, but they can never be perfect. See, that's why you're religious. That's where I'm at. That's what I'm talking about. You think, yeah. No, because you talk there about, you know, dual instincts and, you know, which brings to mind, obviously, Jung and balance. And like, although I know you know you're going to die, it sounds like you think that death is something that's ahead of you and not, and this lack isn't part of, of, of your life at the moment. Like, it almost sounds like man, you think you can- Man, come on, man. If you just, if you just walk with me for, for a, a mile, you know that my ankles are already dead and yeah. you know that my shoulder doesn't work anymore and you know that I can't remember things the way I used to. Like, I'm dying all the time. I'm, I am like, preaching I know the gospel I'm to you. I want to convert you. I'm preaching the gospel to you, man. I want you to bow your knee and embrace the ontological lack. Will you do that with me? I think you're almost there. You're right. I think there's, I think there's part of you that wants to. I'm just, I'm calling on on you now, I, I will play just as I am. Will you come God, to the front? What is wrong will, with Bart, you? Will where, you come to the front? Where, that you. I'll tell you. I'll tell you. Is the difference between another difference between me and you is the reason why it's a, a gospel call for me is that it's not something you can do intellectually. You need liturgical practices that help you enter into the desert of the lack. That's and so some liturgical practices are like analysis. There's others I, I've developed th- practices. But the reason is I go like, somebody can intellectually say, I embrace the lack, but not. This is an existential experience that requires I'll give you, you want a liturgical practice? Yeah. You want a liturgical practice? I do. Go out there and try to love a woman for your whole life and fail every day of your life to do it right. The, the, the effort to try to live a good life is a self it like it has humility built right into it. Just the process of aging has humility built right into it. So like the idea that I need to go through some kind of religious conversion or I need to embrace Freud of all people to, to come to grips with my finitude or to come to grips with my inadequacy just seems ludicrous to me. So I think the main, one of the main differences, and I love, by the way, I love this conversation, man. If nobody listens to this, uh, it doesn't matter a bit because <laughs> I've enjoyed it so much. I think everybody will have turned off about an hour ago. <laughs> yeah, right, right. Except my, except my son, Roman. That's all right. But is that, Honestly, when you talk, you often talk about in such a way that uh, it sounds like we naturally want the best, we naturally want a good life, we, are, we have these instinctual drives, and, and if 
we give people the right counsel and we try to you know, love each other and all of that, then life will go well. And for me, that's an inherently conservative position, which is there's a place where we can have balance, we can have order, uh, we can find a way to, uh, you know, kind of live well, and we want the best for each other. And the reason why I question that is only simply because I'm arguing that with Lacan and others, that uh, that there is actually a dimension of our subjectivity that doesn't want the best for us, that wants to potentially destroy the world, destroy the people we love, destroy ourselves. And the way to overcome that part of ourselves is to tarry with it, make it conscious, somehow bring it into our lives and mobilize it in a positive way. In other words, we yes, have to- I agree and, with yeah. that. I agree with that, but here's the thing. I agree with that because I think that if you went back and, and, and dug into why you want to destroy yourself or why you want to destroy the world or why you want to destroy your loved one, you would find twisted at the center, twi you know, underneath all that twisted logic and stuff at the center, the same instinctual desire to live and flourish and to see your loved ones live and flourish. I think even, your, yeah. even at, the, at the root of the death drive, you, if you if you dug down and peeled back the thing, the, it's like I'm talking to Jordan Peterson. Yeah, I mean, I I, I know what you're saying, but the difference don't, is don't don't ever say that to me. Don't ever say sorry. That, to that me. was a, that was a blue. That and was a low fuck blue. you too. I <laughs> was a low blue. I, but I I only did it so I could like jump in with something. But it was Go I, ahead. I admit. <laughs> Go um, ahead. Is that but uh, the, you used a beautiful phrase that I totally agree with which is at base, there is a twisted dimension, a knotted dimension to our instinct, right? But the, the thing that I'm saying is that you can't unknot it. It's a non-reducible knot. In other words, you can't get back to uh, an instinctual way of being in the world like a dog or a cat, that actually the knot is... Uh, irreducible. And what you have to do is you have to find a way to uh, uh, mobilize that knot. So, so the, the different, like, and I've read a lot of humanist critiques of religion, et cetera, et cetera. And honestly, nine times out of 10, they are coming from an evolutionary psycho psychology position with no concept of drive. It's purely instinct. Their understanding of of ethics is utilitarian, people like Sam Harris, uh, that you've got a, a, a uh, evolutionary psychology. Yeah, no, I get what of, you're saying. I get, I get what you're yeah. saying. And you're saying like, they don't seem to understand that like, it's almost like Danny Kahneman and those behavioral economics. Like he, he's like, he's like all the economic theory up to Danny Kahneman was like, people will try to maximize their resources. And he was like, yes, hell no, they won't. They're fucked up. They'll, yeah. they'll, they'll, they'll do stuff that'll hurt them if it'll hurt somebody else worse. Like they, they, yes. people don't do rat. People are, people are not, they're rationalizing beings. They're not rational. Yes. That was a beautiful way to say it. That's a, if you want, if you want to find a utilitarian, if you want to find someone who's read Bentham and Mill, look at a look at a mouse, right? A mouse is a really good utilitarian. But if you want to find a good utilitarian in human beings, you're going to be hard pushed, right? <laughs> it's, we're rubbish. And by the way, that, this is one of the jokes about Sam Harris wrote a book, The Moral Landscape, where he never. It's obvious he didn't read 
the thousands of years of, of great ethical theory that's been done in philosophy. He came in as a, neuro, as a very good neurobiologist, I will say, right? That's, that's his area of expertise. But he came in and thought that he could write a philosophical text on ethics without having engaged seriously with that tradition. And so he wrote this incredibly naive book uh, that that even as a piece of utilitarian text is not very good, <laughs> but yeah, that's the problem. Okay, so so so, and here's the thing: like this is a point of connection. Yeah, and that is, I don't think that if you just educated people and showed them how, like what what would actually lead to their best life, that they would do that. I know better than that. Um, that's that's why I want to employ all the old things I learned in my evangelical days to manipulate people and to create um, moral um, forces that push on people in ways that they would not instinctually go. Um, there's, there's a sense in which I'm like, I, I saw this great movie when I was a kid. Um, I don't even remember the title of it, but it was this family on a desert island and there were, there were these rabid dogs and they were trying to survive and these rabid dogs bit the father and he knew he was going to go crazy. And so in one, this one scene, he chains himself to a stake at the center of the camp and he says, listen, I'm going to go crazy in a minute. When I do, don't let me go. And like, sure enough, and he does and, and his family, they're, they're like, what do we do? And the whole point is, is that in his moment of sanity, he staked himself down knowing that he would come to a moment of insanity. And I think that's the best we human beings could do is that in moments of sanity, in moments where we recognize what we wish we wanted or what would be better for us, we can make decisions or we can place ourselves in situations where we would be pressured to do those things, even when we hit our moments of insanity and our drives lead us elsewhere. And I don't think it can ever be fully resolved, but I do think that we have to come to grips with the, the self-destructiveness of us or the, the mental illness in us or the brokenness in us that is the result of all sorts of psychic history, you know, and, 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 and I, I don't think, and, and I think like even if you cleaned us all up and made us all perfect again, the reality of death would warp us all over again and we would end up fucked up all over again. Oh, I wish you hadn't said that last bit because I was almost going to say we've had a rare moment where we're pretty close to agreement. <laughs> but, then, but, then, but then you went and said the cardinal sin of, of uh, your position. And the cardinal sin was saying, like, even if we cleaned ourselves all up and we're totally mentally healthy and all that, death would come in and distort it. In other words, the difference between you and me is that actually human, for me, uh, taking this uh, kind of this existential approach is that human beings, are our consciousness is precisely the result of an antagonism in our being. If you cleaned up the antagonism, you wouldn't be left with a scrubbed up human being, even for a second, you'd be left with nothing. You'd no, you're right. With... no, you're right, you're right, yeah. you're right, you're right. Okay, so yeah, that was- That's Ingersoll, Ingersoll saying that 
if we, if we, if, if there were no death, there would be no love and eternal life would be excruciating that, that in a sense, love is the flower that only grows on the edge of the grave that like yes. it's intrinsic, like, like it's in the, it's in the antagonism or it's in the, it's in the, the, the struggle. Um, it's, it's in the, in the tension that, that, Art, let love and art and beauty and everything that makes life meaningful emerges. And I believe yeah, that. And even, even, and even self-conscious, that's, that's why, and I said about it earlier, I talked about ontological antagonism because ontology, as you know, but just for the listener, is ontology is the, the, what is core to being itself. So whenever you say there's an ontological antagonism, you're saying that, that the there core. is a, a, yeah, an undecidability in being itself. And the reason why I say that is it's not even just life and love and art and all of that. It's self-consciousness itself. And actually, if you take a, a cosmological view, it might even be reality itself. Like without evolution is the name of the antagonism in biology. And that's, that's why I want to take psychedelic drugs, because I've, I've been told that under certain circumstances, your sense of self-consciousness, your, your, that yourself dissolves and you can't differentiate mm -hmm. between yourself and the, and the, and the, your surroundings. And that yeah. sounds to me like a fascinating place to go. And, yeah. um, you know, I, I mean, I'm, I, yeah, I'm, I'm very eager to have, if, if that's possible, even for a moment, I want to have it. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's, that's, yeah. And, and, and the philosophy, they call that philosophical love, actually, they say you can actually get it through either drugs, mystical experiences, or a deep, like a deep reflection. Um, so yeah, yeah. But yeah. drugs are probably the easiest way hey, to hey, do it. <laughs> you know, while we've got a little break in the action, and, and I, I'm going to let you go, don't worry. But um, did you, you, you've, I, 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 there's no way you've gone and seen this movie called Free Solo. No. I've it's heard of it actually, but I don't know anything about it. It's a documentary about this guy who's the first guy to free climb, no ropes, El Capitan in Yosemite. Oh wow! Right, and wow. and he's like, and 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 it's it's and he's a little bit on the spectrum, right? Yeah. But he and and he has a girlfriend, but but like it's a, he's a he's a different kind of dude. So it's all about it's it, it, there's incredible suspense, even though you know he makes it, like like you're you're still scared for him, and 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 the, the photography is amazing, it's it's wonderful. But at the end, in the end, he realizes that the only way he can make it up the slope is if he plans it out meticulously, and if he does the climb in like three or four hours, because he won't have the strength to do the last part of it if he dallies at the bottom. And so mm. this is a climb that other people with with ropes and with tents do over three or four or five days, and he does it in three and a half hours, right? So he it, it's and I, I like. It doesn't spoil it for you to tell you that he makes it, but but then he gets to the top, and there's this, and there's only one guy up there, the cameraman, to see him because nobody knew he was doing it that day, and uh, and it gets, and, and the guy says, well, "What are you going to do?" I says, well, I, "I'm going to go back and get some lunch, and then I've, I'm going to do some pull ups and uh, get back into." Tr you're like, and you're like, "You've just done it," and <laughs> yeah. and 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 it's this idea of like, no, 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 no. like the accomplishment isn't nearly as exciting. And it was, it, remember when you were talking about like, you know, the idea of uh, the, 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 the joy versus the happiness and, and, and the whole thing is like, there is really the happiness almost is almost vanishingly small for this guy. Yes, like once yeah. it's done, it, 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 it's nothing. Yes. I mean, and oh, it's yeah, a beautiful picture of that. You'd love it. Yeah. I mean, yeah. And the, the truth is it can even be 
it can be despairing. Like only when you fulfill your dreams do you realize your dreams cannot fulfill you. I have a friend who's a, a well-known actor. And when he got his first big Hollywood part as a star, it wasn't his happiest moment. He was in Australia in, the, in his uh, caravan or whatever, and he broke down and he wept. And it was just this momentary thing. But in one sense, he'd, he'd built up that moment so much that it wasn't actually even happiness. It was despair. <laughs> and, and, and in um, a weird way, in a weird way, it's like the death of his self because he's like, my identity is he who is striving to achieve greatness. And like, if you achieve greatness, who the hell am I now? Yes. Yeah. I mean, this I is- I just a, died. Yeah. This is the beautiful distinction. It's kind of a Schopenhauerian distinction between depression and melancholy. And you could say that depression is the sadness of not getting what you want. And melancholy is the sadness of getting what you want. And, and Schopenhauer has this beautiful image of, he says, we, we oscillate between boredom and suffering. <laughs> <laughs> but but there is a way beyond, and that's what Paro Theology's project is, is to is to get us out of this entire frame of desire. But that is a very natural way that we experience life. We're either unhappy because we don't have the million dollars, or we're melancholic because we get it and we realize, oh, uh, that didn't fix everything. I've got a nicer shower, you know, what I've if got I, a nicer house. <laughs> right. What if I told you that I think that there are some people, and I meet them out there, gosh, I can't tell you the number of humanists I meet who tell me that Pete Rollins was a part of their journey to me. Yes. And so like, yeah. I, like so first of all, I think your work is hugely important. But like the other thing is- They just got to go the next step. They've got to they've not stop reading me because they go like, then they'll get beyond <sighs> humanism. No, they, need, no they, they actually want to make some friends and that's why they leave you. Um, but, but what if I told you that I think uh, that there's- a kind of person whose best shot at flourishing is in your world and and in that in that in that uh, the that framework of psychotherapy and that way of that way of sort of you know embracing the stuff that you embrace and then i think there are these other people and maybe some of them are like there's it's like it's almost like a temperament thing where they're like yeah I need to build that community that has a, a, a mission and a purpose that's about helping other people. And, no, there's and no difference. That's, that's a different story. Like whenever I talk about ontological antagonism, right, that is a claim to, and it's maybe an incorrect claim, right? It could be a completely incorrect, right? But that's a claim to the nature of reality, right? So that's an ontological claim. Right. This like, is the way things mean, are. Yeah. So it, like, there's a multitude of ways that it will express itself. Some people are naturally introverted, some extroverted. Whenever you say there's some people who want to build community, you go like, brilliant. The own, my only issue is whatever you're doing, if you're doing it thinking that you can scrub the antagonism of reality itself, it's wrong. It's not going to work. It's going to be disastrous for you or other people. But if you're able to do whatever project you're doing by realizing that the real joy is in the struggle of it, the building of it, the the depth that comes out of the challenge of it, then you're 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 going to be doing it well. That's you know, there's a, a billion ways of expressing this. Yeah, I, I think for me, for me, it's about yeah, it's about trying my best to to, to pursue love in the shadow of death. And like, if you don't always talk about the shadow of death and the shadow of infinitude and the shadow of inadequacy and the shadow of like fucked up drives that we can't seem to get around. Um, 
like, but, like, yeah, I'm like, but that's where we're trying to, that's called beyond neurosis. That's the exact, that's the cure in, in psychoanalysis is called the cure in religion. It's called salvation and in politics, socialism. And it is basically, it is, yeah, the beyond, the beyond of neurosis. I totally agree with you that nihilism has to be overcome. That's what Nietzsche talks about. Nihilism has, but it's overcome by being taken into yourself. And not, it's not about, yeah, you're right. It's not about thinking about death. If for some people, it's guilt. For some people, it's meaninglessness. For some people, it's finitude. Those are those are the three main ones. But um, but it, but but whatever, whichever way the lack manifests in you, tarrying with it is yeah. is is healthy. And, 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 and for me, it's all about. If, but for me, it sticks with like in the end, it's like it's all for me. It's still about acknowledging that and and seeing it and learn and saying like that will be with me for like throughout this journey but i'm still going to try to navigate in the direction of life and love knowing that i won't get there knowing that i won't know knowing that I, knowing that in, in, in some sense there's a futility to my struggle but like going like that's like you know, when you talk about balance, knowing I will never achieve balance, it's like I'm trying to achieve balance in an earthquake. Like the earthquake will always be happening. I will always be balancing. I will never be balanced. I will always be trying to grow. I will never be grown. I will always be seeking health. I will never be healthy. The only thing is I do want people to listen to this and start thinking we sound like Deepak Chopra. So one thing, uh, here's a, here's a, <laughs> but here's the thing about parotheology, which I was like, so the death of God, right? Now, for in the 1960s, there were some very good philosophers and theologians who were talking about this, and they talked about the death of God objectively. So when did the death of God happen in Western civilization objectively? And basically, that's the 17th century enlightenment. It's whenever science didn't require God as an hypothesis in order to make uh, progress, right? In order to explain something. So yeah. To explain something, yeah. So the death of God happened objectively, you know, around the enlightenment. The death of God subjectively happened uh, in western society really in the 20th century two world wars the holocaust you know you see existential literature you see that 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 what kierkegaard was trying to do which was to see the religious and the subjective that's blown wide open in the 20th century so the death of god happens subjectively basically 20th century and by the way that doesn't mean that everybody feels it just at the high point of the culture feels it but my argument with those people is there's a third place that God has to die. This is the theological thing. And by the way, Christianity is all about the death of God. Crucifixion is unconsciously. And that's that's what parotheology is aimed at doing. It's like, yes, God, God died objectively in 17th century, subjectively in the 20th century. Now God has to die unconsciously. And what that means is even though we don't believe that there is something that will make us whole and complete. I live in LA, most religious place in the world, right? People act as if something will, right? You can just see how frenetically people pursue things that that they think, they don't think consciously, but they act towards as if it will bring wholeness. And for me, the, the, the technology of parotheology is to facilitate the death of God unconsciously. That is when the dialectic reaches its zenith with the death of God. And then God can be reborn. And that's why it's a Christian project, because there is a God after God, not the God of theism, not the God of being, but rather a, 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 an opening to a new transcendental reality. 
that uh, that is apocalyptic, which means we can't even imagine what it's going to look like. Boy, you had me right up until all that weirdness at the end. <laughs> because you're like, embrace the struggle, embrace the struggle, embrace the struggle. But if you embrace the struggle, then apocalypse will come and a new God will emerge. And like every, like you're a, uto- you're a fucking utopian at the end yeah. of the day too. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and you're, you're right in a sense that I think that, that there is a gospel, which is that the apocalyptic uh, event is a community, a collective of people. And AA is a good example of this. If you want to bring it down to earth, that are that that are able to embrace their own fracturedness uh, in a way that is transformative and productive. But here, and here's one other thing I'd love to just throw into the mix because you know people will listen to this and think I'm way like in away with the fairies. So I want to give you a concrete example of why balance is impossible, um, and it's from analytic philosophy. So no one can accuse me of being like continental in game theory, right? Individual rationality, which comes out of the Enlightenment, where individuals are rational, right? Basically, people have conflictual desires. We can all agree with that. But like, imagine if we didn't have conflictual desires. Desire is in and of itself conflictual. So an example, uh, in LA, there's rumor that there's a water shortage, right? I don't believe there is a water shortage, but I, there's a rumor going around that, that water is going to run out. As a rational agent, I have to think about what to do. So I think to myself, should I conserve water, fill my bath, fill tubs and buckets? And I go, well, here, if everybody does that, we're all screwed, right? Because even if there isn't a water shortage, if everybody conserves water, then- That's the tragedy of the commons. Yes. Oh yeah, it is. Exactly. Exactly. So, but then I go, well, I, I shouldn't conserve water, but then I go, well, if I don't conserve water and everybody else does, then I'm doubly screwed, right? Um, But if I conserve water and nobody else does, then it's fine, right? Nobody really is harmed. So as a rational agent, I end up doing something that's profoundly irrational, right? That there is an era, and that's just game theory, that shows that through being a rational actor, my own rationality in relation to a whole, a, a, a society, can result in absolute disaster. And that is the problem that I don't think um, people like Peterson, because by the way, I agree with Peterson about his critique of, you know, liberal, whatever, but, but where I think he's completely wrong is his notion of balance and order, his uh, Jungian Gnostic approach, which basically says that, you know, rationality doesn't lead to inherent conflicts. And I'm interested in those inherent conflicts. Yeah. I'm interested in those inherent conflicts too. Yeah. That's the world I live in. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's funny, man. Just before I came over here, I just had lunch with a guy who struggled with, you know, lifelong struggle with mental illness in and out of institutions, lonely as hell, you know, sort of steered to me by another friend who's just thinks like, maybe you can help him. Maybe you can draw him into your community. Beautiful guy, just shattered on the inside and so open about it. And mm. so- you know, and, 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 and so, you know, I, I go from Hegel and Kant and all these high-minded ideas. And then I just go like, yeah, what am I going to do about that guy? Yeah. Um, you know, and, and, and I, you know, so, so for me, it's all, it's all really grounded in, in that. And, and the one thing I would say is like, you know, when you find, you know, what was it, uh, Tolstoy said, you know, all, 
all happy families are the same. Every unhappy family is unhappy in its own particular way. Mm, oh, yeah, right. And I will tell you that while you, you never resolve the conflict, every now and then you wander into a family or into a, a dinner party or into a group of friends or a soccer team or whatever it is, and, you, and, and it has the mark of a happy family. Mm-hmm. And, and, and one of those marks is, is that people are, um, they're, they're not trying to escape the, the duality of life and they're not trying to, they've embraced, yes. they've embraced it all. And there's humor and there's food and there's, there's love and there's acceptance, but there's not uh, utopianism and there's, there's not, people aren't shocked when somebody, when, when they let each other down and, and, and there's, there's, there's an easy camaraderie of forgiveness that says like, yeah, you know, I know you're saying you're sorry now. I know you're going to fuck me again too. And, uh, you know, th- th- there's something about that, w- the, the mark of every happy community or every happy family that has to do with this thing that you're talking about, mm-hmm. that is the embrace and, uh, and the acceptance of the, the fundamentally irreducible conflicts that come along with consciousness. Yes. Um, and so, you know, I, I, I don't know. I mean, like I, I can't, I can't go with you all the way on all the, all the Freudian stuff. Like it, it, it feels too, it feels like that's what I always felt about Christianity. It was like, what are the chances that, that I just happen to be born into the one true path of life? You know, like it just feels a little bit too deus ex machina and the idea that uh, like but hold on hold key- on hold on hold on just on that just on that because you're you're have a common sense notion of universalism there which is because all of us have a particular particularity we're growing in a certain language a certain culture certain right, thinkers right, right. force. but for hegel which i think he's completely right in this is universality isn't that some, how do we get a God's eye? We either get a God's eye view or we're trapped in our particularity. But it's in your particularity, you find a discourse that opens things up. So Hegel describes it as a particularity that changes all particularities. So whenever I ah, talk about yeah, Freud nah, or something like that, yeah, it's, it's only going like, because Freud was wrong, a whole pile of stuff. I'm just talking about his major insights. But right, it's like, right. is that if I, was, if I grew up in India, it would be a radically different way of opening up universality right. but i'm just using the i'm using the tools of the western tradition mostly anyway keep uh, going and, and bro in my everyday life that's what i'm trying to do i'm trying to do for most of my post-christian friends is i'm trying to help them look back and relate to their christian friends and family members yeah and sort of recognize that that's their that's their particularity and that if you really understand the universals you'll be able to kind of like discourse with somebody and understand somebody and not necessarily have to disabuse somebody of their particularity just because it's not yours. Exactly. But here, and here's the thing, I think that's beautiful. And just in relation to Christianity and you said it, you know, Christianity is one of the distance that's really informed me. And by the way, not as a Christian, like I, like I became a like interest in Christianity at 17. So it was, you know, it was not in my childhood, but it's but when I studied scholastic philosophy in my twenties, I discovered that Aquinas and uh, 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 Anselm and uh, uh, Augustine and these others had such profound um, philosophical and practical ways of looking at the world. 
and that actually people when they when someone rejects a whole tradition uh, they they don't realize that oh my goodness no there's such profound stuff in there and Christianity has such profound stuff as soon as you stop believing in the Hogwarts magic right uh, and and start going okay these people were tarrying with very serious discussions that we see carried out now in in quantum mechanics then suddenly you go oh Meister Eckhart has something profound to tell me so yeah i i, I really encourage people to go back and yeah. another th- you got to get over your pain you yeah. got to get over your pain but if you can't you know because you know and you and i didn't get hurt the way yeah, some, some people, people get hurt. yeah um yeah although i i one of the things i love about fundamentalism is but it does teach you to be not of this world and i do think that's a valuable thing that people take out of their cult-like Aye. experiences a certain skepticism about you know about the contemporary world which is impressive Anyway, sorry, man, we've been talking. Yeah, no, it helped me. It helped me during my three years in LA. It helped me in my three years during LA to not get to to where I was comparing myself or trying to keep up. Like, like I was practiced in looking at the world around me and going like, I'm not one of these. I'm I'm set apart. I'm different. And there's something healthy about that. Yeah, it's something Um, very interesting about that. Absolutely. Absolutely. So yeah, there's a lot we share in our differences. Thank you. I've loved this. Oh, I've yeah. really appreciated the conversation. Oh, yes. It's beautiful. It's beautiful. I'll talk to you right, soon. Baby, I love you. I'll talk to you soon. Love you. Bye-bye. Take care. Bye. All right. That was me and Pete. If you can't figure out why I love that man so much by now, you were not paying attention. Um, you can hear Pete and his buddy, Elliot Morgan, on their podcast. It's called The Fundamentalist. I highly recommend it. Just because I highly recommend any conversation that Pete is having around issues of meaning and, and, and understanding life. All right, so that's me and Pete. Now, I told you I was going to read you a letter, and I am. This is a letter I got from a listener named Eric. And Eric says, just reaching out to say thanks for the podcast. I'm an English teacher, and I wanted to share a brief story about how your podcast made an impact. Driving home from spending some Christmas time with my Christian family, I listened to your podcast. Towards the end of it, you encourage your listener to make that phone call, invite that person over, make the most of this holiday in a humanize me way. After arriving home at eight and putting my kids to bed, I called a former student to grab a bite to eat. As I expected, he was alone on Christmas. So I picked him up from his apartment. We decided against the packed waffle house. And instead I had him over to the house for a microwave burrito and a root beer float. Not your traditional holiday meal, but as you would imagine, priceless for both me and him, who had plenty to catch up on. We reminisced about the past, anticipated new beginnings, and overall enjoyed each other's presence in the moment. There's nothing groundbreaking about the rest of the story. No conversion story. Thank goodness. Just an appreciation for the encouragement to reach out to someone who needed company at a lonely time in his life. With that said, despite listening for years now, I finally decided to become a patron because of the tangible difference the podcast is making in people's lives, including mine. Thanks for all you do, Eric. Come on now. Come on now. You see why you should support the podcast? Because the podcast once in a while inspires somebody to do something that makes their life better, that makes somebody else's life better. We are sending messages of positivity and hope and goodness and love and sacrifice and suffering and real life, the good, the bad, the ugly. We're, uh, we're keeping it real out there and it's having an impact and you can get a piece of it by becoming one of the show's sponsors. So there. 
And if you don't do that, at least recommend the show. And if you don't do that, at least come back and listen next time on Humanize Me. For more on BART, go to bartcampolo.org. If you like this podcast, please consider supporting it every month and get extra content for it. Go to patreon.com slash humanize me. Our patrons do make the show happen. Follow us at Humanize Me Pod on Twitter and Humanize Me Podcast on Instagram. You can also join other listeners on our private Facebook group. Just search Humanize Me on Facebook. To ask your own question on the show, leave it as a voicemail at 424-291-2092. That's 424-291-2092. And finally, please review us on iTunes. It really helps. Catch you next week. Humanize Me is a production of Jux Media. Hey, you could be larger than life, bigger than the world. Living out the hopes and dreams of every boy and every girl. Hey, you could fly higher than the sky, shine brighter than the stars. You can live all you ever wanted. Oh